Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, New Books Network audience, and welcome to our podcast today. My name is Erica Monahan. I'm your host for today, and today we are talking with two authors that have written a wonderful new book. The book is called The Ruling Families of Roos, Clan, Family, and Kingdom, and it is co-authored by two extremely accomplished scholars in the field of medieval Slavic studies, Christian Raffensperger and Donald Ostrowski. Donald Ostrowski is a research associate at Harvard, and he is the author of multiple books and volumes. I'll just mention two here. Most um, recently, in 2000, in 2022, Don published a, a book based on years of thought and research called Russia in the Early Modern World, The Continuity of Change. And many years before that, um, his first major monograph, I mention here because I think it's foundational to the conversation we have, um, was Muscovy and the Mongols, Cross-Cultural Influences on the Steppe Frontier, 1304 to 1589. Uh, so we're very grateful to have Don here. Christian Raffensperger is the Christian Kenneth E. Ray Chair in the Humanities at Wittenberg, Wittenberg University and the Professor and Chair of History. He, too, has written several books and co-edited several volumes. I'm only going to mention um, a couple of them, most recently in this year. So congratulations. Um, not the subject of this podcast, but he has published in 2023 a monograph, Rulers and Rulership in the Arc of Medieval Europe. Um, in addition to many other works, I mentioned an, an earlier work, also his first monograph, if I'm not mistaken, and that was Reimagining Europe, Kiev and Rus and the Medieval World. I mentioned that because I also think it's foundational to the things we'll be talking about here in today's conversation. And we're so lucky to have these scholars who have been working deeply in the sources for many years. And it's a real pleasure to get to um to get to have them here to talk to us about the rule the ruling families of Rus. So welcome to both of you, Don and Chris. And I would like to begin by asking uh, the question we often ask at the start of New Books Network uh, um, interviews. Could you tell us a little bit about your path into history? How did you become a historian? Do you want want me to go? Okay. My father father was a teacher. Uh, He taught history. And I just... Uh, we had very lively discussions at home, and he would bring friends over, and he was a great devil's advocate type um, arguer, and uh, it it just went on from there. Uh, so yeah, my father, he got me into history. Thanks. Okay, Thanks. wow, that just gave me some deep psychological insight into you, Don. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I uh, got started. I was just a little kid who liked to play with knights and castles. And uh, then I started taking Russian language in high school when the Soviet Union started to come apart. We got a teacher who came in. She was not uh, a certified language instructor in America, and uh, she was just a Russian speaker. And so we had a gym teacher who sat in the back of the room because he had a teaching certification. Uh, and eventually, um, I, in college, I learned about the Vikings in Eastern Europe, and I thought, aha, I can combine my two interests of medieval uh, and Eastern European, and um, it's basically been all downhill from there. Or downriver, as the Vikings would prefer to go, perhaps. Or... That's right, yeah. <laughs> no, no. That, um, well, gosh, that offers a, a lot of insight into you, and certainly, Don, with your tendency to play the devil's advocate, I've seen that before. Um, okay, so... Uh, now to this to the book. You've both touched on these themes before. This is a very old history that's been written about quite a bit. Why did you write this book? Uh, so this book uh, 
actually started as a request from Reaction Books. Uh, and the uh, editor there had written to me and asked me if I wanted to do a book on uh, Dynasty in Russia. And I said, no, I don't want to do anything about Russia, but I might be interested in Rus. And we played around with some ideas and, and uh, I ended up putting it on a back burner. Um, and about a year later, I talked to Don about something else uh, that we were working on, and I shared the idea with him, and I'd sent over some notes I had made, and he's like, this is great, you know, absolutely, you should not have put this on the back burner, and I said, well, I don't want to do it, but if you want to do it with me, then we could do it together, and Don was all in, so, I mean, the editor reached out to me uh, to start the process, but I wouldn't have done it um, if not for Don's involvement, because as you said, you know, so many of the ideas in this book are really a germination of things that he's been working on and I've been working on. And to be able to intertwine those together, I thought was just so terrific. So uh, that's really uh, in a nutshell, I think, how it originally started. Yeah, this, this is, this is uh, another case where uh, Chris shares with me an idea and then I muscle in on it <laughs> to get partial credit uh, for it. it. It's all Chris's idea. <laughs> I defer to him. Oh, I don't know. Well, actually, okay, here I am going to um, share a little bit of an anecdote. The first academic conference I ever went to, I think, was one where Christian was a graduate student and Don and he presented his paper and Don stood up and asked all kinds of really, really, really hard questions about it. And I was thinking if I was that graduate student, I would just crumple up in the fetal position on the floor. But Christian um, just fielded them fantastically, you know, knowing some of the answers, not knowing some of the other answers, but it's been so remarkable. I think that, um, I think that you in some ways have been pursuing all of those answers and boy, if you couldn't answer them when you were a graduate student, you can answer them now. Well, you know, Erica, I remember that so well. Don was the discussant and I mean, that was absolutely the best discussant and apologies to everyone else that I've ever had. And it set the bar for me because um, I expected that level of intellectual engagement uh, ever after. And, and it's rare to get that. And that's one of the best things about Don and what kept uh, me coming back to him on collaborating on projects is that like it would be something that uh, he would just sink his teeth into no matter what the topic was. And in my year in, at Harvard, when I was a fellow at Heary, you know, we had lunch uh, pretty much weekly. Um, and it was great to just have all of these ideas bouncing back and forth and uh, reading drafts of work. And it's just the intellectual engagement is, is fantastic. Oh, thank you. And I, I echo, I had the same experience. And also, thank you for mentioning Heury. I neglected in the introduction to point out um, that you are, your affiliation is with the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute in Boston. So apologies um, for that here. And that is what Huri stands for, for the um, audience members that didn't know that. Um, great. Okay. Well, then let me, um, let's, let me start out by asking you a bit about so one of the central arguments that I gather from this book in terms of a way you are intervening on the historiography, what's been written about this history so far, is that you're arguing that dynasty as an organizing principle is a later construct that kind of gets developed, articulated in the early modern period, and that we come away with a better sense um, thinking in terms, if we think of this period and the uh, dynamics and what's happening in terms of family and clan in order to understand the historical trajectories. And so, and I, um, and so, and I appreciate that. And one of the things I love about this book is that this sort of on the ground level of things unfolding, you've got a Slavic prince on the Danube and, and um, you know, they're in Abkhazia and everywhere. Um, and it, and it, and you really get, uh, I reading this, get this very fresh sense of an on the ground perspective, but yet if, if here I could be a little bit of a devil's devil's advocate, or I just want, would like you to clarify for me is um, that 
you know, what, um, so what harm, what harm is done if I think in terms of dynasty, even here, you know, the sources so well, you point to, um, you point to um, some moments when five generations are listed, you mentioned that, you know, subsequent descendants at some point name someone Rurik, um, which maybe it isn't clearly articulated, but that seems, you know, is it pointing back to that ancestor or is it a name in, in the mix? And so the kind of, as a, I want to ask you, why shouldn't I read that to infer that there's at least an aspiration to dynasty here? Um, if, it, um, yeah, like, do I, what do I, what do I, what harm is done if I, if I want to think in terms of dynasty and, 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 and am I so wrong to, um, to imagine that they might've been aspiring to dynasty? Um, I think you are so wrong, Erica, but I'm going to let Don tell you why. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. The, the, the word dynasty means basically just a succession of rulers who are related in some way. Um, don't even have to be related, but, you know, uh, basic, the, the, denotation is a succession of rulers so yeah it could be dynasty the problem here is that that term has been co-opted um and i'll i'll just say by by uh the russian narrative of rus history where um it becomes teleological there's a dynasty that starts with rurik and it goes up through the muscovite princes uh, up to the Rurikids of Muscovy. So it's it, it was all kind of foreordained that and, and that it would end up with Russia uh, being dominant. And you, and you can see this in um, the, the uh, genealogical tables like Abrihanovsky's textbook and, and others. They, they cherry pick who they include in the line which goes back to um, the Stephanai Kaniga, uh, goes back to notions beginning in the late 15th, early 16th century to bolster the claim of the Muscovite princes to be the rulers of all Rus. So it's all propaganda. So on one hand, no, dynasty is a very innocuous term, harmless in and of itself, but the way it's been used creates a, um, imposes a narrative on our sources that really skews our understanding, I think. If I can expand on that, the frame just a little bit, Robert Bartlett's new book, Blood Royal from last year, also points out that, that it's an anachronistic term. You know, we don't have Carolingians, for instance, in the Middle Ages. Um, you know, this is not a term that they used. It's not a way that they thought of things. And, you know, I think actually Anthony Caldellis's work on the medieval Roman Empire um, is so good in this regard because he's trying to separate what the medieval sources say from what the early modern and Enlightenment thinkers thought. And this is one of the big problems with doing medieval history is getting past um, the filter of the early modern and enlightenment thinkers in so many ways. And not just in, in Russian uh, or Eastern European history, uh, but in general. Thank you. That, um, that is super helpful. And as I said, yeah, I've you know heard this these histories before, but reading this book felt quite fresh to me. Um, okay. So the next question or kind of a series of questions I want to say, but I just want to say thank you for being so attentive to women in this history. I, I mean, that every, you, um, you know, we see again and again, women from Olga to Anna to Juliana, whom I'll ask you to speak specifically about um, being named and seeming as difficult as it is to really get a, you know, we, we don't have a GoPro camera. We, the sources are so frustrating in many ways, as, as you point out, but women seeming to really have autonomy. And um, 
And Christian, from your perfect previous work, you've studied this in such detail. And so I kind of wanted to ask you to reflect a bit out loud on these, these kind of ignorant, maybe a little obtuse questions that, that come into my mind as, as a woman. And I, and I don't even like um, framing them as a woman. I kind of feel like maybe I shouldn't, I don't want to even put it this way, but if we're, so I kind of, some of the things I think about is, you know, if women are finding, if we're finding women rarely, but so clearly in the sources that representatives of Olga are named on an embassy to Constantinople um, in the ninth century. And another case where, you know, a woman signs a document and you point to another document where a woman is, you know, named as ruling with her husband. Um, so, and then also this Anna that goes to France and seems to have been the reason behind naming her son Philippe, which wasn't a French name before. Um, and I wanted to ask if that had Slavic roots, but um, at any rate, that's a little bit of a um, parenthetical question inside. But so have we missed that women play these roles? Um, if so, why have they been left out? Or if women, if, you know, patriarchy wins out, which to editorialize, it seems to me that it did. When did it? Um, or did these women maybe not, not have the power we might like to see women have, um, but in as much as they were representatives of a family, th that in some cases they were afforded autonomy that we wouldn't otherwise see. Um, again, you've written this wonderful book that goes into, that's based on a close, close reading of sources and really trying to triangulate and, and infer what's really happened. So in some ways it's an unfair question to ask you to generalize, but um, that's so, you know, I'd love okay, to, so, um, I'm happy to, although, you know, I kind of was hoping for some yes or no questions, but I, you know, this is kind of, this is kind of a big one. Um, okay. So I'll start with a story, which is a colleague of mine, Amy Livingstone, who works on medieval France. Um, you know, when she started studying medieval France, she, the Georges Duby, who was the, you know, the Dean of, of French medieval studies had written about charters and he's like, women just don't exist in the charters. And she thought that seems really odd. And so she went and looked at the charters and it turns out women are everywhere. Um, you know, and that's in the 1980s when that work started. And, you know, it's actually the same for Rus. We in the Slavic world are of course, just a, a little bit slower than those uh, in Western Europe. And so, you know, at the same time as that, we had Eleven uh, doing good work uh, on women in Novgorod and then sex in the Orthodox Slavs. Um, but not a lot has progressed in that world. And so when I write about women uh, and dynastic marriages, that feels new and fresh. But in fact, you know, a lot of those things uh, we, we've seen in the sources for a long time, but I think have just been read over. Um, and, and I myself am responsible for that. I wrote a book, The Kingdom of Rus, about how we should change the titulature of Kenyaz to be king rather than prince. Not once in that book did I mention a woman. I didn't think about Kinyagina. I just didn't think about it. Uh, teaching that book at, at Wittenberg, I had a student, Jessica Storman, who said, well, wouldn't that make the Kinyagina a queen? And I really was like, oh, huh. totally forgot women existed. Um, and so now, you know, in my rulers and rulership, you know, I talk about this um, in Mea Culpa, that fact, you know, and talk about how these women are queens. And in this new book I've got um, next year, Name Unknown, it's called The Life of a Russian Queen. And, you know, I thought I knew a lot about uh, women in Rus, but going back and rereading the sources, I kept finding them in all these places. And, you know, you've got the Novgorod Judicial Charters from the 13th century. And it's like, okay, yeah, everybody has to pay taxes, whether it's the, the Kenyaz's land or the Kenyagina's land. You know, the Kenyaz can't take slaves from here, nor can the Kenyagina. I mean, they're everywhere. Um, and we just haven't paid enough attention to that. Um, you know, and there's little mentions in, you know, the Hypatian and, and uh, other sources that say like, oh yeah, this is a woman's town. Right. Um, it was her town she was in. And there are all of these little things that when you begin to add them up, it's a pretty big deal. Uh, I'm writing an article right now on rings um, and the majority of signet rings that have been found 
in Rus that bear a, you know the 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 symbol of the Volodymyrovichi clan or variant um, are have found in female hordes with female jewelry and are sized more appropriately for a woman's finger than a man's. So, I mean, we, we have very few male signet rings. We have many more female signet rings. And, and there's all of these things that I think we have just read past them. And again, like earlier, I think this is a consequence of, you said patriarchy, but I think it's also an early modern and uh, enlightenment patriarchy. Thank you so much. And actually, there's a picture, uh, there's an image of, uh, a, I think, a signet ring in the book, or not a signet ring, a different ring. And that reminds me that I, I am so impressed by the illustrations in this book, color illustrations that that are really yeah. relevant to, to the moment you're discussing. And it re- it is, I'm fantastic reaction did a wonderful job with the images i was so impressed on i think you were as well we talked about this and they made it at a price point that's affordable um don and i worked a lot to get those images but um pasha um at uh, the hillandar research library she was invaluable in finding us some of those images too so i i didn't shout her out in the acknowledgments but certainly i need to hear because she was just fantastic yeah Please, Don. I'd like to add to what Chris was saying about uh, just not seeing things. And it seems to be a chronic uh, problem, not only in in our field, but in general. Um, And, you know, the the work that Chris has done on the relationship between Rus and Europe, it's been there. I mean, this is not new sources but you don't see it unless you look for it which which chris has done a spectacular job of doing uh likewise the the mongols <laughs> and even step nomads it's easy to just kind of brush them aside charles halpern has a, a excellent article in kluchevsky uh who just ignored the mongols he, he doesn't even have a mongol period uh, in his, you know, in, in his multi-volume uh, history of, of Russia, uh, but he knew better. He grew up among Tatars. He, it's, but it, not to go too far afield, but we we have this problem in the U.S. where we just don't see pe- certain people, you know, because for whatever reason. Um, uh, so women, yes, the 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 evidence is there. But it has to be kind of um, uh, extracted. It's 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 not read write history. Yeah. Which for for uh, male rulers, you know, you can just go to a chronicle, write down what the chronicle says, and and you have a publication. With women, I'll, I'll give a, an example. Uh, Ines uh, Garcia de la Puente has a wonderful article on the queen of Minsk, (laughs) unnamed. We don't know her name, but it's pretty clear from the evidence she ruled there for 40 years. Um, But, you know, hardly hardly, uh, uh, any mention at all by anybody of of this very important uh, ruler in in Bruce. And even sometimes talking to people still today who are uh, perhaps of a different generation, you know, they will not accept some of those arguments because there is a very particular view that, well, certainly women were not rulers. Um, and it's hard to get past that. And, and I think the seeing past things that Don is talking about um, is also relevant for the work uh, on connecting Muscovy into the broader Eurasian world. Because, I mean, even the way I learned it was the traditional Russian narrative, the Kluchevsky narrative of Russia stood alone, Muscovy stood alone. But, um, you know, Don's Russia in the early modern world, there's connections everywhere. I mean, you know, we could start with the Muscovy company, um, but then, you know, we could also get into everything happening in Central Asia. Um, You know, we could get into, oh, I just forgot the name of the ship um, that sails down the coast of Siberia into uh, the Indian Ocean. And I mean, you know, there are all of these greater ties in the world that we just generally don't talk about because we've fixated on a particular narrative of Russian history, which is a straight line from Kiev to Moscow and then kind of just kind of sits in Moscow. 
I mean, even your work on Siberia, of course, like has created a whole new area that we can look at for Muscovy. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. And so well said about kind of read write history as not being the mode to do it in and also uh, this comment about reading over and then so again in in future work maybe or maybe the question I'd ask but I'm not asking it right now is do we have a lot of cases where male rulers don't get named um if yes okay good if not why do why how could a woman rule for 40 years and in the midst of chroniclers and not be named the but maybe that's a forthcoming answer or um no i it, i mean the reason i titled this new book name unknown is because that is the default um we get uh, okay so even uh you know roman mistislavich famous galician valenian ruler marries a woman who then represents both of her kids um and rules on their behalf we we're told that she rules on their behalf and yet her name is never recorded um she is so and so's wife so and so's mother the sister-in-law of her the sister-in-law of him um, we never get a name. And so there is an immense amount that's been written on this, and we just reference it in the book. Um, but Darius Dombrowski, an excellent Polish scholar, has done a whole genealogy of the Misislavici. And I mean, he gets into like all of the various theories, and you know, she's called Maria of Byzantium by some, and, and but we actually do not have a single primary source that has her name. Right. Uh, She's incredibly important, <laughs> um, but no one thinks to mention her name. She is just the the princess, the wife of, the mother of. Yeah. Here you have to look at what what are our sources um, and our main source are chronicles. Well, who wrote the chronicles? Monks. Who, <laughs> do, uh, <laughs> on, on the whole, do not have a very positive view of women. Nor do they have a positive view of the steppe nomads. Um, they and their writing is second or third hand. They're not eyewitnesses, so they're getting information that's already filtered through, and then they're uh, modifying it, editing it, and then we read it. And but if you look closely, you can, if you look for it, you can find evidence. Uh, as Chris pointed out, uh, but you have to analyze it and extract it uh, from from what they they. I don't think that they are intentionally excluding women. They're saying, "Oh, I'm going to exclude women." It's just that's their worldview that women don't count. You know? Yeah, mm. yeah. Thank you. That that is so illuminating. And you do have um, one of the things that's so impressive about this work is how you identify how in different contexts, the same man has a different name as well. You know, Mstislav and then um, the Harold Vladimirovich. And you have some other examples too, which makes me appreciate the hard work that goes into making some of these connections if you've got different men being called different things in different documents. Um, and women, I mean, you know, women traditionally we've seen change their names. And, you know, one of the um, pieces of evidence that has been so frustrating is that you find in scholarship that's older scholarship uh, that these women change their names because they're rebaptized or because they become orthodox. But there's no requirement for rebaptism. And in fact, there's plenty of names, uh, people in the West um, who change their name, women who change their name, um, you know. Matilda is particularly common, and Byzantium Irene is particularly common. It, it, it's not about rebaptism. It's often about you know cultural norms um, and cultural norming. And you know we see this less in America today. But I remember um, in the eighties, uh, people adopting children from Romania or from Korea, and all of a sudden Kyung Duk becomes Ken, right? Or Jiang Ha becomes Jay. Um, because it is cultural norming. So I, I think that's what we're seeing with those name changes rather than some broader ecclesiastical issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can think of graduate students that I've met that say, you know, my name is this, but just call me this. It's easier for people here. Uh, so it's happened probably too many times. Um, okay. I want to ask you about um, one of the reasons um, that, you know, in, between the two of you, you have looked east, west, north, south from Rus so deeply. And so I wanted to ask you, 
do you see a sustained bias in a in particular in a particular directions or a particular chronology in in the directions in which Russian leaders are marrying and forming stronger connections. Um, do you see, I mean, is it more ad hoc? Is it determined by religion? Is it determined, you know, by politics in either a tactical or a strategic way? So I know that's like a huge bundle of things. Again, asking if if there's generalizations that you'd pull out about the directions that the, the families you're talking about here are are trying to go in. And and this question is sort of coming from reading along how the breadth of the connection, the established connections that you depict. We've got we've got um families that are making marriages and treaties from the, you know, Scandinavia and Poland and far in Western Europe and Byzantium, but also Abkhazia and the Polovtsi. Um and it's it's just you know, so dynamic and reaching and making connections in so many different directions. But, but then if I, if I, um, you know, there's so much in here. So if I kind of stop me, if I've mischaracterized, but it seems to me that following the Volodymyrichi family, that there comes a time where you, you do start to see them having enough opportunities that they're not, the men are not marrying out so much. They're staying closer to home. Um, and so, yeah, again, sort of thinking about those dynamics, I guess I'm asking you to, if you can generalize, are there generalizations that we might take away from the dynamics you've charted here? Yeah, I'll take a stab at that first. Um, yes, I think we could generalize and say that realpolitik is in effect. They're interested in marrying wherever there's going to be an advantage. I don't think they privilege religion. I'm pretty sure they don't privilege ethnicity. We don't see any marriages with, with the South Slavs, for instance. Um, I mean, that's just really, really rare. Um, and even if we're talking about the West, Poland is no more favored than Hungary. Um, and Scandinavia certainly is is equal to those. So I don't think there's a religious motivation. I don't think there's an ethnic motivation. Um, I think the perception that there are less marriages as the time goes on is, again, a Muscovite-centered perception. Because if we don't look at Vladimir Suzdal, but we look at Galicia Valenia, the marriages continue, and it's deeply interrelated. Um, and then I think when we get to, and I, you know, I'm getting into to Don stuff here, but if we get to the 16th century and there's a prohibition on marrying outside of orthodoxy, that is really when there's a dramatic change um, and not not very much before. But, you know, even if we're talking about what by then is called Ruthenia, there's still plenty of intermarriage and, and Lithuania plays an enormous role there. And that's usually left out of these uh, mainstream uh, Muscovite Russian narratives. Thank you. And Don, will you add to that? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, just, you know, shout out to Russ Martin's book on uh, A Bride for the Tsar, where he he really goes deep into the sources uh, and analyzes them so well about why there was this turn away from uh, marriage uh, outside of <laughs> the, 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 the of, of Muscovy, uh, uh, basically. Um but before then, yeah, the the okay, one one in in um, I I think well I know there is a definite tendency um, to look back, <laughs> okay, when looking at the history or the sources for for Rus, we tend to look back from the present day, you know, you know Russia, Ukraine. So there's a Russian narrative. There's a Ukrainian narrative, um, but it's Khrushchevsky. Khrushchevsky himself pointed out those are skewed because they're nationalistic based on what occurred later. If if you reverse it and you go forward, <laughs> uh, not you know putting out of mind what what happens later in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. But what happens at the time, I think you do get a fresh perspective on things. You know, for example, we 
going back to your original question of dynasty, you know, we think, well, of course they understood that they were Volodymyrci or Rurikids. They, 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 they had to understand that. And that was part of the equation for becoming kings, rulers in a particular town. But we don't see that in the sources. We don't see it. So let, let's put aside that and see if we can explain it from the, their perspective. And what we see over and over uh, again is my father ruled, my grandfather ruled this town, or my my uncle ruled in this town, and my father. They, that's their perception. I think the monks are accurately representing what, what the perception of these elites are. Uh, as long as you can establish that your father ruled there, preferably father and grandfather, you have a claim to being the ruler of that town. Nothing, nothing else, no <laughs> connection to this, this semi-legendary Viking person named Rurik. Nothing else. That's all that they perceive in their world. Okay. So marriages... It, it's once described um, being an administrator once was once once described to me as white water rafting. They're they're basically white water rafting going forward, and we want to impose an order, you know, a, a, a overall conceptualization. Oh, they must have had this in mind, you know. Well, to a certain extent, but I'll give you an example. The um, the wife of Andre, the, the brother of Alexander Nevsky, was um, he 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 was uh, attacked by you know Batu sent uh, uh, an army against him. Well, okay, that's you know there are various explanations in the chronicles, but at the same time he sent an army against Daniel of Galicia. Well, why would he do that? Well, there's a connection there. The wife of Andre was the daughter of Daniel of Galicia. And the chronicles say the Mongols sought her out. And some of the chronicles say they tried to kill her. <laughs> I Probably that's that maybe hyperbole. But they wanted to get her. Why would they want to get the wife of the ruler of, uh, of uh, Vladimir? And, and that I think that marriage connection is is very important to explain why Batu is attacking both Daniel and Andre at the same time. Mm. Yeah, actually, the um, you know I've been asking you these kind of questions um, of interpretation, etc. But to maybe just dig into a little bit more of of the content of the book, I thought that I did. I would like to ask you a bit more specifically about you know some of you have these. Um, you, you kind of have these framing chapters and then you go into particular families and tell these stories with such clarity and such um, a, a fine-grained degree of speaking from the sources that for anyone that teaches this material, this book is just gold, by the way, between kind of the pictures and just your clear exposition of what comes from which sources, et cetera. But so could I ask you to tell us a little bit more about Alexander Nevsky and, and the story you tell us in, in chapter seven? Um, he's such a, well, again, in a very teleological history, he's so important. Um, and then you tell this other story about families. Well, yeah, the um, you know, I reframed that that chapter in terms of the uh, Eisenstein's film, <laughs> where he starts out to, uh, with uh, why why is it that Nevsky is fighting the Teutonic Knights, but he's not fighting the Mongols, um, and so Eisenstein has you know. A, a possible interpretation that the Teutonic Knights were a more immediate threat uh, to Rus and that he would take care of the Mongols later. And in fact, uh, Eisenstein had um, uh, prepared uh, a tentative script for for part two of Al Alexander, 
Alexander Nevsky going up through Dmitry Donskoy, fighting the Mongols, you know, and uh, and defense. So kind of a, a two-step uh, process. Well, that that you know, credit to Eisenstein. I mean, he he read the sources, he read the interpretations, he was uh, as up on things, and that's a plausible explanation. But um, and Fennel, uh, John Fennel, uh, you know, raised the question in his book about was Nevsky a collaborationist, kind of a, a Quisling or a, a Marshall Patan type, uh, where he's ruling, uh, uh, you know, part of the the, the Ulus of of, of Georgi, uh, but in in the name of uh, Fatu, uh, just as Patan ruled part of France in the name of Hitler. You know, he was allowed to uh, do that. Uh, and Patan, we know, was accused and, and found guilty of, of, of treason by the French courts. But Nevsky instead is praised as a hero. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, there are all sorts of honors for, for Alexander Nevsky uh, medal and, and all sorts of things like that. So what the, the question is, what is going on? Uh, and it's a very simple matter. The, the Mongols were the rulers. They were the sovereigns. Okay. They, they did allow uh, local rulers to run the day-to-day -day, uh, affairs. Uh, but there's no such thing as collaboration. You know, collaborationism, I think, is a kind of a modern, more mm -hmm. modern concept. This, this happens all over the place, all over the world, where new rulers come in and they allow the previous rulers to be there to conduct matters. They, so, um, well, we we should again going back. We should avoid trying to impose our later conceptualizations. Instead, we should try to extract from the sources how how are they doing? How, how are they perceiving things? How are how are they looking at this? And there was no no shame in that at the time, because why the Mongols had the power. <laughs> they were the sovereigns. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And we have a similar situation with Bohemund of Antioch, uh, you know, working with the Mongols and being, I mean, he's actually, you know, called out for it by the papacy, but, um, you know, it is, it's, it's a power dynamic that made sense at the time. Yeah. And or actually you medievalists, uh, at the risk of making, uh, showing a weakness in chronology about when, well, A, I'm not sure that Nevs what interaction Nevsky might have had with just war theory and when it really gets nailed down. But isn't one um one point of in order to wage a just war, you have to expect you have a reasonable chance of um of succeeding that kind of to sacrifice your population because it's your idea did not qualify as a just war theory. And not, not that I want to you know, defend or judge in the court of history, Nevsky at all, but, but he's just such a fascinating, his, that history and how, um, is fascinating and no less fascinating is how he has been treated, um, subsequently as a, as an individual. Um, yeah. So, well, gosh, let me, let me add, go to another, I don't want to, I know I can't keep you all day. Uh, let, can I ask you about, to tell us a bit about uh, Yuliana, um, Uliana Alexandrovna and her family, who is the subject of a later chapter, chapter 10. Um, please tell us about her. Chris, you want to take that one? No, go for it. <laughs> well, uh, just in uh, very quickly, in general terms, the 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 importance of Uliana again is um, in in terms of the the marriage connections, the her her re relationship to her family, the relationship to the family she marries into, uh, is all part of that uh, dynamic of 
um, the, um, uh, the, the realpolitik, as, as Chris mentioned, uh, but the, 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 if we, if we just say, oh, you know, the rulers form alliances, you know, we're missing out on an important point, a connecting link, which is the, the marriages, the marriages are there to uh, validate the uh, alliance um, in, in a way it, it's it, it's it's a um, uh, a show of good faith. <laughs> I am giving my daughter to you to validate this alliance uh, in the future. But that the, the relationship between Lithuania and the uh, Muscovite princes is so complex and it's been so oversimplified i think in our sources that oh the lithuanians are bad guys the muscovites are the good guys and lithuanians are fighting muscovy except when they're not <laughs> and then, and then you have um uh sons of uh rus of muscovite rulers fleeing to lithuania <laughs> and getting support there it's well, how did that happen? And then you realize that it was the Lithuanians who were challenging Mongol rule, not the Muscovites. Well, and she's, I mean, she's a princess of Tver. I mean, her, her father is Alexander Mikhailovich, the ruler of Tver. Her sister Maria marries a uh, one of Ivan Kalita's um, sons. Um, you know, her uncle marries uh, one of Yuri uh, Danilovich's daughters. I mean, there's Tver ties. So getting away from the Muscovite narrative is what, what we really wanted to do. And so that means we also have to tell the Tver narrative and the Lithuanian narrative. And, and they're all connected. <laughs> um, and we uh, have managed to prune out in our normal Muscovite-centric history, all of those other narratives uh, and just focus on Ivan Kalita leads to Simeon, leads to, um, but there are all of these other narratives. And so she is, I think of her as a nexus because she's a Tver princess with connections to Muscovy. And then she's married to Algirdas um, of Lithuania. Her kids are Yogaila, Skirigaila, Svidrigaila, who end up as future rulers of Lithuania. Um, so there is this immense influence there that is all focused on her. Plus, she's just a powerful woman. I mean, she founds a church, she founds a monastery, she retires to a monastery after Algirdas dies. I mean, she's an interesting character in and of herself, but she really is also a nexus for retelling the history of Rus, because she's a Rusian princess who is coming from Tver to Lithuania, where there are also Rusians, because that ruler, Algirdas and then Yogaila, are the king of Rus. They've got the Dienapa River Valley, you know, the heart of what, what originally Rus was, certainly after Battle of Blue Waters, so... Yeah, and yeah. in Yogyala, Yogyala, you're talking about the Polish, the, the Lithuanian rulers that will king be the kings of the Polish kingdom for centuries as well. Um, yeah, this history is so fascinating. Don, you were starting to say something. Well, uh, yeah, the Yogyalonian uh, dynasty, uh, so-called, yeah, that, that begins with Yogyalonian. So uh, now the, uh, the, yeah, the, 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 the entire question of the Lithuanian relationship, I, I think, has been greatly um, skewed in 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 our our, our general scheme of things. Um, and going back to Chris's point about how the uh, the Moscow-centered view of Rus history. We'll give you one example, uh, Rezan. Rezan, um, that everybody knows, Rezan was sacked, leveled by the Mongols when they invaded, you know, 1237, 1238. Okay, but does, how many people know that uh, 20 years earlier, it, it was sacked, leveled by Sievalod, big nest and he 
uh, forced all the residents, as Chronicles say this, you, know, you can question whether this is accurate or not, all the residents of Rezan to come to Vladimir Sozdo, to populate the, the area of Vladimir Sozdo. It was, according to the Chronicles, it was gone. It was completely razed. But then, but the comes down to us is the Mongols did it. Later, several decades later. Yeah, just like on, well, I mean, in, in your book, we find occasions of, um, you know, Andrew Bogolovsky, and that's not even the only incident, if I'm not mistaken, of, um, you know, these princes sacking Kiev. And um, and yet nowadays we get told of this history of, you know, unbroken brotherly love until the West came in and poisoned things. So, which well, I- Well, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, that is certainly part of the narrative, but, you know, um, Don had mentioned Ryazanovsky's textbook earlier. I mean, Ryazanovsky basically says 1054 is the end of any unity in Rus and it's nonstop internecine warfare and bloodshed ever after, um, which I certainly don't think is the case. Um, but yes, you're, I, I take your point. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah um, no, I, I, I just love how much both of you know about the ins and outs of this history. I I promised not to keep you too long, so I'll want to wrap up here. Um, but if I could, I, I just want to make a couple of comments to, um, to people that teach, like me, I teach medieval history. I, I, I'm an early modernist, and I just found this book so wonderful in the way you clearly spell out all these incidents of the Chronicles. You clearly say, you know, where a fact come from, comes from, where it's corroborated, where it isn't. And I love the way you bring in the you you've really scoured the source record beyond the the primary chronicle, which is, you know, the um from that russo-centric perspective is considered as you know this foundational document but you're going to german chronicles and byzantine court and papal court and and i i just really appreciated um your narrative so to anyone that teaches this history i get your hands on this book and you will find yourself with fantastic lecture material and also speaking of teaching i have to say um i i'm guilty as charged in that i have this slide i say you know Russian history has two dynasties, the Rurikids and the Romanovs. And, and we won't really count the Gudanovs and the Shuskis because they didn't really take in this period of state collapse. And, and I am persuaded that that needs to go. And, and not only, but even, and even teaching for a while. So being an early modernist, you know, and um, this, the, um, as people that have studied uh, Russian history, know closely Muscovite history, we have this period of state collapse um, at the beginning of the end of the oh, beginning of the 17th century. And there's this moment in 1598, the dynasty dies out, the Rurikid dynasty dies out, but, um, and we have this period of state collapse, but of course, there were lots of rural kids around, but no one wanted to, you know, no one felt like they would do. And so that right there is sort of a clue that we've been missing the boat by explaining this in terms of dynasty all this time, right? If it, if the rural kid dynasty, what was, was what mattered, we wouldn't have had such a crisis. And then, and, and then also this other point in this, these last comments, when you're talking about the Lithuanian mix and marriages and connections, et cetera. I know when I first read um, started to learn about um, in this moment of state collapse where the idea of having a, a, the Polish king become the Muscovite king was taken seriously, you know, thinking in terms of nation state divisions and what I'd been taught. I thought that just sounds so wacky. But then once you start to understand this earlier history, you start to understand how that sort of a solution um, could be in the mix of possibilities for real. Um, and so, uh, so in some ways, even in the early modern period, there is um, your your work here goes into so many of these really fundamental details um, that we need to understand in order for any of these later dynamics to make any sense at all. So, so thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, I want to just interrupt you one real quick, Erica. I taught with it this semester. Uh, ruling families of Rus and rewrote my whole course around the book, and it was just wonderful. I used it, and I used portraits of medieval Eastern Europe. Um, so we had portraits, and then we had this book, and 
it, you mentioned the images earlier. So I always had images and genealogies that I could give to the students to help them stay on track and keep track of the names and everything. And so I, I actually think the way we laid out the book, I'm blowing smoke myself, but the way we laid out the book is is conducive to a class week breakdown. Um, and so I dealt with a, a chapter a week, um, and that worked out really nicely with a couple of additions for, you know, intensive reading. We read, um, as as I often do, we read uh, Don's Muscovy and the Mongols and, and Charles Halperin's Russia and the Golden Horde and and discuss them together. And um, so I think the, the book does work well as a classroom book, and it was easily understandable to my Wittenberg University undergraduates. Super. Yeah, I well said. Um yeah, thank you. Thank you for writing this book. Um, Dodd, do you have anything you would like to chime in with before I ask our final traditional New Books Network question? No, I, you know, final word is um, just try to understand the sources on their own terms. How, how were they perceiving things? Not how we perceive things, but how were they perceiving things? Um, great. So our final question, Kristen, you've kind of alluded to this. So let me go to Don first. Don, what are you working on and what will we see next from you? <laughs> well, uh, the, uh, the the course that I'll be teaching in the spring is historical controversies and um, it, it takes a thematic approach. Uh, and we spend five weeks on the Shakespeare authorship controversy because it is so essential to, I think, understanding not just authorship of, of the Shakespeare's plays, but how scholarly endeavor works and, and how a certain group can kind of take over and suppress uh, um, publication of articles and books that go counter to the the standard view uh, of things so um, the uh, it, it it is uh, uh, I think an essential question uh, that uh, you know I I wrote to a um, editor uh, of uh, a, a newspaper and said you know I, I'd like to review for your for your, um, uh, it, it was a newspaper magazine. I'd like to review for your magazine this new book on on the whole controversy. And he said, "Well, our our uh, our readers are not interested in such a narrow topic. Said, it's not a narrow topic. <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of crucial. Uh, but I, I I have to admit that a lot of people don't want to hear about it. So." Yes, that's uh, that's what I've been working on. Okay, great. And Christian, you talked about this unnamed rulers. Is your next project? Yeah, well, that's I mean that's done and and in production phases. So I mean the 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 next thing I'm really starting in on is a return to tissue literature. And you know, Don put this very well. Like, what is this, what do the sources tell us? Because we make all these assumptions. And I'm starting with Hungary because Hungary's got sources that are in Latin, and then there's Byzantine sources in Greek about Hungary, and then there's Russian sources about Hungary. Uh, in Slavonic. And so what are those rulers called? Because we have this impression that in the medieval period, rulers were of a people. Um, and then in the early modern period, it changes to rulers of a place. Um, and, you know, when you look at actually the sources, that doesn't fit. Um, you've got in the same source, ruler of Hungary and ruler of the Hungarians. Um, and then also in that same source, you've got ruler of the Arpods and ruler of the, uh, you know, uh, Huns. Uh, I mean, it's like this conglomeration and, and maybe just tying together some of the things we talked about. We are so stuck in our mind as moderns that there must be a hierarchical organization and there must be a schema that fits this, this model. I don't think that they were like that. Um, it was It's much more of a literary interpretation of, in this sentence, it fits better to call him king of Hungary. And in this sentence, it fits better to call him king of Hungarians or Magyars. So. Okay. 
Oh, well, I will be interested to see that too, read that work because, um, you know, I don't focus on that too much, but then when you start paying attention, one of the things that's um, come to my attention is how often people are claiming people are territories that they really on the ground don't have any sort of power over, but it isn't standard and they change. And then I look at these maps where sometimes I'm just wondering, maybe it's just what they could fit in the cartouche, but again, how do they prioritize it? So yeah, I'd, I'd like to, I should even mm -hmm. ask you, you know, has anyone done how often people are lying? Cause it's not just the Muscovite grand princes that mm -hmm. lie about what they control. Um, you know, Charles mm -hmm. V did it too. Um, but that when Ivan the, Ivan the third seal um, in ruling families, um, you know, we talked about where you know he lists like I am the ruler of all of these places and he uses Tsar and he uses Veliki Kanyaz but then he lists Moscow, Tver, Novgorod, Peskov, all of these various places that he is on. Yeah. I'll look for yeah, it. And, and, and yet what we privilege is Muscovy. He's the ruler of Moscow. But if you were to ask him that he wouldn't say that. Right? Or his Seneschal would say all of these things. I what does that change about our interpretation, right? If we think about it in a different way. I, I mean, I think that's one of the questions that Don and I both like to ask is, you know, how were they thinking about it? Not how are we thinking about it? Very well put. Gentlemen, it has been such a pleasure to get to talk to you about the ruling families of Rus. Thank you so much for doing this work and talking about it with me and to the New Books Network audience today. So with that, I will say goodbye and thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you.